And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And it was so, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her first, uh, firstborn son, wrapped him in a swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were, in the same country, shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not! For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said one unto another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they had heard it wondered at, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept in her heart all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. The word of our Lord, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come boldly before the throne at this time, Lord, to praise you, to thank you, Lord, for the incarnation of our Lord. Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for this time that we have to worship him, Lord, to celebrate his moment of birth, Lord, that we would keep you in mind, Lord. We ask that you would just be on our hearts, Lord, and be here in our midst and to lead us, Lord, that the speaker would be minified and your son, Jesus, would be maximized. Father, we ask for your mercies wherever you are willing to provide them, Lord. We ask that you be glorified in all of this and that your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we ask this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so this is a very familiar section of scripture. We're reading out of Luke chapter 2, and it's really the the large part of the nativity story. But if we want to understand where we're coming from, we should turn one chapter back to Luke chapter 1, and we'll understand that that the Lord's coming, we want to examine the prophecies that foretold it and see how his coming was a fulfillment of these messianic prophecies. So there's two particular prophecies I want to look at this morning. One is in Isaiah chapter 7. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is fulfilled 
in the birth of Christ to the Virgin Mary. And we know that she was a virgin because in Luke chapter 1 it says, and in the sixth month, which is the sixth month of uh, the pregnancy, John being, uh, 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 Elizabeth being pregnant with John. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph and of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so we know that she was a virgin. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. So this actually came up before church today, this idea of you know, having, having a favorite song leader, having a favorite uh, anything. And now we know that the Lord is no respecter of persons, but we also know that the Lord favors certain people. He, Mary was highly favored among women. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. She's troubled because anytime an angel appears to you, it would be a shocking and glorious sight. Often in scripture, people fall down on their faces at the sight of an angel. And the angel said unto her, fear not, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? So one of the arguments that comes up against the virgin birth frequently is that they would use the word virgin to mean like a young maid, and that those words are interchangeable. But here we have Mary clearly uh, disputing that line of approach. She's saying, I have not known a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the son of God. So the prophecy in Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the birth of our Lord is fulfilled in the virgin birth of our Lord. Now, the second prophecy I wanted to look at here is actually in Micah chapter five, two, chapter five, verse two. It says, the Lord Bethlehem, the Lord says, Bethlehem, you might not be an important town in the nation of Judah, but out of you will come a ruler over Israel for me. His family line goes back to the early days of your nation. It goes all the way back to the days of long ago. So the Lord is speaking to the prophet Micah, again, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And he's saying, Bethlehem, you might not be an important town. Bethlehem, the the word Bethlehem means house of bread. We know that the Lord is the bread of life. One thing that we can observe in this Christmas season is the coherence and the unity with which the Lord implements his plan of salvation. He knows that Christ is the bread of life. He intends that. He makes the Lord to be born in the town of Bethlehem because it's this overarching sort of beauty and unity in the story and the narrative. And there's this, you know, it it, it is a modern notion that all things come from chance, that all things are random, that there is no purpose in our lives. But that is clearly untrue, especially when you understand that the providential will of God is the ordering principle of all things. And we're going to get a little bit more into that. I think it's mission critical to understand what it means for God to be providentially sovereign. 
meaning that he is purposeful in his sovereignty. It's not, he, he, uh, he's in control of all things, which is sovereignty, but he, his purposeful sovereignty is providence. It is his intention that things should happen. It's not random. He doesn't do things arbitrarily. All things are, have meaning and have connection to that sovereign will. So, returning to Luke chapter 2, we learn in the first verse that he is born in the, uh, under the dominion of Caesar Augustus. So this is the reign of Augustus Caesar, one of the most famous of the um, Roman emperors. And we know that he, uh, the Caesar calls for a tax, and so uh, they have to go uh, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, one of the criticisms that, you know, we're all here on Christmas morning. I think it's a very important thing that when Christmas falls on a Sunday, we still come to church, right? It's sort of a shocking thing that many churches around the country choose to forego church on a Sunday because, I mean, I mean, it's an inversion of the principle. The holy day is Christmas. The word Christ, Christ mass, right? Literally, uh, Christ, our Lord, mass. Mass is an interesting word. We all know that it sort of refers to uh, uh, the, the Roman Catholic sort of liturgical Eucharistic worship uh, session. Um, it's, it's fascinating, actually, when you look at the etymology of the word mass, there's no clear root. The Germans have a word, uh, miss, which means assembly. The Latin, there's a miss that means like delivery. It's uh, um, the root word of the word missive. Um, and then, of course, in the Hebrew, you've got matzah, which is bread. So we're not exactly sure where the word mass comes from, but we know for sure that Christ mass is about Christ, right? There's no doubt about it. And so you've got this, um, this sort of line of approach in the world. What the atheists will tell you is that Christmas is a pagan, and it's not even just the atheists, by the way. It'll be the humbug Christians. And I, and I don't mean, I don't say this with judgment. You are not, if you are at Christian liberty to celebrate whatever holy days, whatever festivals you see right fit. And likewise, those who, of us who do celebrate Christmas also have Christian liberty to celebrate those holy days. And so the, uh, the idea of the humbug Christian sort of saying, no, we ought not celebrate the birth of Christ because it comes out of pagan roots. Well, it's actually worth talking about those pagan roots a little bit because, again, God is providential in his will. There are no accidents of history. So what they'll say is, well, during the, the Roman, uh, Roman Empire, they had a, a, a festival that lasted for a week long called the Saturnalia. It went from December 17th for a week. And that during that time, they would eat, drink, be merry, and give gifts. And then uh, around the year 274, you've got the beginnings of, a, of another festival called Sol Invictus, which means the festival of the undefeated sun like the sun in the sky, which was a, a deity in the Roman pagan system. Well, then in 336, less than 100 years later, Constantine converts to Christianity, and he makes December 25th formally the celebration of Christmas. So while they say, oh, this comes from pagan roots, I think the clear understanding here is that Christ has conquered the heart of a pagan king. And taking a holiday that was celebrating a false idol and made it into a holiday celebrating the true son of God, which is Christ. And so when they say that Christmas comes from pagan roots, it doesn't come from pagan roots. Christmas comes from God. The pagan roots have been subjected to the lordship of Christ. Again, this is something we talk a lot about here when we meet on Sundays, which is that 
every knee will bow to the Lord. Every enemy will be defeated. The final enemy to be defeated will be death. The most cited verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, your enemies will be made your footstools. So this argument that Christmas is not a Christian holiday is is patently absurd. Um, But, you know, when you have these people coming to you with this sort of quasi like pseudo intellectualism and they're saying, oh, well, the wreath and the tree, these are all pagan traditions. It's like they're pagan traditions that have been conquered and subjected to the lordship of Christ. Like all things will be. So God has a sense of humor. He loves those who hate him often. And he preserves their names and traditions under the rubric of his lordship. Now, some people would then question the date that we celebrate December 25th. This originally came actually prior to uh, Constantine's celebration. Uh, I think it was 221 AD, so less than 200 years after the crucifixion. You've got a a Roman Catholic, uh, Julius Africanus, Sextus Julius Africanus, who did a comprehensive dating of all the events in scripture and in history. And he found, in his view, that the conception must have happened on March 25th, which would put the birth on December 25th. So it's very convenient and elegant and uh, coherent the way the Lord has set up the history being discovered in 221, the false idol being worshipped uh, in uh, less than 100 years later, and then the false idol, the worship of the false idol falling and converting to Christmas. Like, even in history, these things just always work out according to the providential will of God, such that his glory aboundeth. And finally, this is, I think, the most important argument about when they're talking about the Christianity of Christmas, whether or not uh, you know, we have a right to celebrate this holiday if we feel called to. This, I think, is the most important argument. You don't need it. Everything else I've said is just sort of happenstance or the way that the way that the Lord has set it up such that we have the evidence that we need to, to demonstrate the, the, that we ought to be celebrating or we can be celebrating. But most importantly regarding the date, regarding the Christianity of the thing, God is sovereign, which means he controls every molecule in existence. Primitive Baptists, we understand that God is sovereign to preserve his word. And so we use the King James Version of the Bible. Why do we use the King James Version? Because God is sovereign. He decided that you and I should all live in this time and in this place where the King James Bible is the version of the Bible that has been delivered up unto us that is the most reliable source of God's word. And that's all you need. That's all, that's all the argument you need, that God has providentially decided for you that you would be here in this place, that you would be here reading this book. And that is all you need. You don't need fancy evidence. You don't need all the facts. You don't need to know any fancy names from two... You know, 1,800 years ago, you just need to know that God is sovereign, and he has decided that you would be in this church at this time reading this book, and thank God for it. So praise God. Christ is born. I wanted to tie this all into our regular study of John, because we're, we've been learning from John for the last couple months. We still haven't even left chapter one. Again, it seems providential. It seems a part of God's purposeful will that we would be studying the first chapter of John at the same time of year that we are celebrating the birth of our Lord. 
And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So, the word in the Greek is the logos. Okay, L-O-G-O-S. It's the root word of the word logic. It was used probably 400 years prior to the time of Christ by a philosopher named Heraclitus. And when they started using it, they were using it to mean, to, to refer to an abstract principle of reason. Okay, what does that mean? Reason, logic, these are the words we use to refer to the rules that govern ideas such that one idea cannot contradict with another idea and then both be true at once, right? That's the law of non-contradiction. We've got laws of logic like the uniformity of nature. Every day we wake up and we expect gravity to work the same. We expect the rules of nature to work the same. That that nature is uniform more or less across time. And why do these things exist? They exist because God has spoken them into existence. God upholds creation by means of these laws that he has written into existence. Okay, And so when it says that the logos is made flesh... He's it's God's word, the logic of creation being inserted into material reality, into the plane that we live in, to this town of Bethlehem in the dark of night, in the middle of the Middle East. And you have to understand that what this would have meant to the Greeks at the time, because for four, these are the most philosophically inclined people on the planet. They've been they worship uh, a pantheon of deities. And they, they look at uh, this realm, this material realm, as defiled, as lower than the higher, more transcendent realm of ideas and gods and abstractions. So when John writes that the Logos is made flesh, it would be incredibly offensive to the classic mind of ancient Greece, right? It would have been very shocking and strange for any philosopher or learned person who has conceived of the Logos or the principle of reason as a sort of high, unattainable, uh, abstract, platonic ideal. It would have been shocking to hear that this has been made flesh or made uh, into matter, made into a material thing, because they never the twain shall meet. And so... At the time, it would have been completely unexpected and bordering on the line. Like for them, it would have been sacrilegious. I mean, they sort of worshiped at this uh, at this pagan altar. And so what John is saying is shocking and offensive to the to the classical mind. We every year we celebrate this. We celebrate that the logos is made flesh. It's incarnate. It is made. It is embodied. Incarnate. The word incarnate comes from carn, meaning flesh, right? Meaning uh, uh, a body. So incarnate. That is what we are celebrating here. And it says that the light shineth. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We celebrate this time of year. It's fa- Again, it's just so beautiful how it all comes together so 
perfectly that the light shines in the darkness during this time of year, right around the the winter solstice, where the night is the longest, that most of our time now is spent in the darkness. But that is when Christ chose to be incarnate, to shine forth the beautiful light of Bethlehem. I wanted to turn to Hebrews chapter two, and I'll just I'll just finish with this because it's important, I think, to remember that Christ was made flesh, the logos made flesh, the principle of reason made matter, that he was God condescending to the state of man. He was lowering himself for some purpose that the manger in Bethlehem sits under the shadow of the cross. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, as we live in flesh and blood, partake of flesh and blood, partake of the bread and the wine, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ, in the flesh, took on death itself such that he could destroy death. It was an act of warfare against evil, an act of warfare against death. Death, which is the wages of sin. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. So Christ is made flesh to suffer in the flesh and the blood just as we suffer. So that he could destroy death, destroy the devil. And deliver us from bondage, from slavery. So we're delivered up into liberty, which is the right to do what we ought to do. And we are freed from death, which is the wages of sin. And so God comes in the flesh to wage war against the sin, the death of this world, and to suffer as we suffer. And so when you're suffering, when it's cold and it's dark and you, uh, you get, I get sad this time of year. Like I get low energy I, you know, you wake up, it's cold, it's still dark, and you just have low energy, right? You should remember that in that suffering, you are sharing in the suffering of our Lord. In suffering, we are closer to God than at any other point in our lives. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this time of year, Lord, and for the light that is your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Thank you so much for this good news, Lord, that history has been written by you for our good and for your glory. Thank you for the celebration of the birth of your Son. Thank you for his example. Thank you for this closeness that we have with him, Lord, that we would suffer as he suffered, and in that suffering, Be close to you, God. Father, forgive us for our many sins and be here present with us. Help us to repent from those sins that we would be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of John.
going to read the first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things that were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men might through him believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of the light, that that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man but of God and the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth Danny's right John did not use the word logos accidentally. He knew what he was saying when he called Jesus the word. But I want you to understand, we're not just talking about some abstract principle that God made flesh. We're talking about a person. In the beginning was the Word. This is a person that existed before the beginning. Because in the beginning, God was already there. We, read, we learned that in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before the beginning, God was already there. And so is Christ. So is the Word. The Word is coexistent and eternal with God. Now, brethren, I'm going to say some things this morning I don't understand, and I don't expect you to understand them either. Okay? And sometimes we as Christians just have to be comfortable knowing things we don't understand. Because some men have gotten really confused trying to understand the ununderstandable. What do I mean by that? I have a beginning. Before sometime in 1966, I didn't really exist. Maybe sometime in 1965, if you count my conception rather than my birth, right? I didn't exist before that. I was not around when Kennedy was assassinated. Maybe some of you were. I was not around when Sputnik orbited the earth for the first time. Maybe some of you were. I was not around when we declared victory in Japan and the um, treaty was signed or the surrender papers were accepted on the, the USS Missouri. Maybe some of you were. 
But I doubt any of you were around when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, bringing an end to the Revolutionary War. We all have a beginning. Now, when you're young like these girls, eternity future just makes perfect sense, right? It's going to last forever, right? As you get older, eternity future, you know, our, our imminent demise becomes more real the older you are, okay? I mean, this past year, I lost my last, my, my father's last brother, and then maybe a month or two later, I lost my first cousin. And that's not right, because he's younger than I am. I mean, that's not right. Um, if mom were here, she would, she would confirm, and I'm sure all of you mothers and fathers can confirm, you should not have to bury your children. That's not right. It happens more often than it ought. But that's not right. And the older we get, the more acquainted we are with our own imminent demise. But praise be to God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we understand that that's not the end. Because of what Christ did for us, we know that that's not the end. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because I'm still talking about the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Brethren, you are not expected to understand this. A guy named Arius got really, really confused because he tried too hard to understand this. What we know, what is revealed to us, is that Jesus is God and Jesus is with God. Now that doesn't mean like he's beside himself. Okay? That's not what's under consideration. It's more mysterious than that. And that everything that was made was made by Jesus, by the word. Everything that was made. And you'll run across some people who will tell you, you know, if you notice that um, on the first day, God said, let there be light. And then later on, he made the sun and the moon and the stars. And some people will tell you that when he made light, he really made Jesus, who is the light of the world. Now, Jesus is the light of the world, but God didn't make him. He's begotten and not made. We know this because the word made everything that was made and nothing that was made was made without the word, including the word. So that we say, not that we have a clue what we mean, but we say he is begotten and not made. Why do we say that? Because the scripture says that. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
You know, you'll come, come across people that if they can't understand it, they can't believe it. If I can't figure it out, it can't be true, right? Mathematics is the foundation of all science, right? All science has its foundation in mathematics. The funny thing, there's a funny thing about mathematics. A couple of guys, I can't remember their names, it's not important. They set out to prove mathematics from first principles. To try to boil it down to its most fundamental level. They published a a multi-page, and maybe even multi-chapter proof that one equals one. Or one plus one equals two. How about that? One plus one equals two. Yeah, that's tougher to prove than you might think. I mean, because what is a one, right? I mean, I know what one of something is. And you do, you all do know that two plus two is five for moderately large values of two. That's an engineer speaking, that's not a mathematician. Because engineers understand a thing called significant digits. And two has only one significant digit, which means it could be anywhere from 1.5 to 2.4. Because it's only got one significant digit. And 2.25 and plus 2.25, that's only a moderately large value of two, right? That's 2.5. That's three. Or five, that's five. That's two point, that's four point five, which is five. So two plus two equals five for modern and large values of two. Okay, for your math lesson. <clears throat> Why is that important? Because after they published their multi-volume work trying to prove math from the very very firstest principles, that's kind of like truly redundant. Because principle means first anyway. So we've got the firstest prince anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Some other dude published a paper proving that no system of mathematics could be complete. That it was impossible for any system of mathematics to be complete. That means that there will always be truths. That cannot be proven by mathematics. Think about that for a moment. Your math has a hole in it. Your math has a gaping hole in it. And you're going to tell me you don't believe in God because he doesn't add up? See, because the gaping hole in math is God. Now don't tell me and I shouldn't believe in God because he doesn't add up when your math has a gaping hole in it. It's another reason why we're just going to have to be comfortable not understanding some things because we don't have a frame of reference to understand them. We are temporal and we are carnal. And God is eternal 
and he is a spirit. And the only way we can have any understanding of God at all is if he imparts to us an eternal spirit, which he has done in the new birth. So because we have been given an eternal spirit in the new birth, we have the ability to understand God as well as we can. Without that, we would have no ability to understand God whatsoever. And that is exactly what Paul meant in the second chapter, 14th verse of 1 Corinthians, when he said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, neither indeed can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. So, Dane was right. This concept of the word being made flesh is blasphemy to the Greeks. But this concept of God being made flesh, that was blasphemy to the Jews. Okay? So this idea that the word became flesh, that was blasphemy to everybody. And you'll see this. See, it's so critical that John would call anyone who denied that Christ has come in the flesh antichrist. The Jews didn't want to believe that Jesus was God. And the Gnostics, these were Christians that were too heavily invested in Greek philosophy. See, we've got to be careful. We've got to be very careful about trying to understand things that are ununderstandable and using Greek philosophy or any other human philosophy to try too much to understand God. The Gnostics, overly um, influenced by the Greeks, denied the humanity of Jesus. They didn't believe he actually came in the flesh. But what the scriptures reveal to us is that our Savior is the God-man. Again, I don't know that I know what that means. I know he's completely human. I know he's completely divine. I don't know how that works. Okay? I don't, I don't, many people have, have, have philosophized over how that works. And they have complicated understandings of how all that works. All I know for certain is what is revealed to me. And what is revealed to me is that the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. One of the things you you find when you read the gospel of John, especially when you read his epistles is the words of an eyewitness. Can you hear him? We beheld his glory. 
When you read the New Testament, you are reading the works of eyewitnesses for the most part and those who had the direct contact with the eyewitnesses, um, Luke and Mark. But Matthew, he's an eyewitness. John is an eyewitness, or he's a liar. Peter's an eyewitness. There are a lot of people that deny that Peter wrote Peter, but if Peter didn't write Peter, he's a liar. Because the man who wrote Peter claimed to have been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, it could only have been Peter, James, and John. And it wasn't James because he was dead. He was, he was murdered by Herod. Okay? So it's Peter. Or he's a liar. But the Holy Spirit's preserved for us the words of the eyewitnesses. And you see in 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul is declaring the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to leave this real quick or we'll be there all day long. Anyway, he says, and lastly, he's giving you a litany of witnesses. He's telling you all the eyewitnesses. And he says, lastly, he was seen of me also. Paul says, I saw the risen Christ. So we see this eyewitness. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember the transfiguration I talked about briefly? Where God's, well, Jesus' glory was manifested and they saw him in his full glory. John was there to witness that. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, as Taylor Swift put it, haters going to hate, right? Some of you are young enough to know what I'm talking about. They're just going to hate, 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 hate. And they come out of the woodwork this time of year, don't they? They come out of the woodwork. He's talking about some of the haters. Oh, the Christmas tree, it's a pagan thing. Actually, it started with Martin Luther. Who was, he was walking in the woods on the, in the winter. Notice the stars through the pine trees. And so he brought the tree in and put candles on the tree to represent God's light from God's heavenly light coming through the trees in the dark of winter. I do not recommend putting candles on trees. That's probably not a good idea. But like I said, haters going to hate, right? Talking about, we shouldn't sing three, we three kings because they were not kings, they were wise men, and there's no record that there were three. Those are absolutely true. They were not kings, they were wise men, magi, probably astronomers, because they saw star, and there's no record of them being three. But that's not the point of that song. That's just the first verse of that song. But so often, we only sing the first verse. We should stop that. The point of that song 
is that he's God, he's king and God and sacrifice. That's the point of that song. That that child in the manger, and it wasn't a child in the manger by the time the Magi got there, but that child was king, is king, and God, and sacrifice from the gold, incense, and the myrrh. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That's the stumper, isn't it? How did David call him Lord by the Spirit? Think about it. I'm not going to go there because there's just too much to unpack in that verse. Meditate on a chance. Because Jesus is attributing the psalm to the Holy Spirit. So how did David, by the Spirit, so not only is he attributing the psalm to David, many people don't think David actually wrote the psalms, but Jesus is not only attributing that psalm to David, but he's attributing it to David speaking in the Spirit by the Holy Ghost. When he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That was a stumper. They couldn't answer that question. The the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the lawyers, they, they couldn't answer that question. Like Hark the Herald's best line is near the end. Rise. The woman's conquering seed brews in us the serpent's head. Sometimes I think Christmas is as big a deal as it is because people are most comfortable with Jesus' baby. Okay? Because he's harmless, right? Brethren, the Lord was never harmless. Never harmless. One of those angels that proclaimed his birth to the shepherds would have been more than enough to destroy the entire army of Herod that Herod sent to Bethlehem years later. He was never harmless. But he did humble himself. We read in 2 Philippians that Though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Let that sink for a moment. Jesus knew he was equal with God. It wasn't a question. It's clear. Why? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But even though he knew he was equal with God, there was no doubt in his mind. Who thought it not robbery equal with God, took upon himself a body of flesh, like unto our own, yet without sin, and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We live in a world where obey is a dirty word, right? There's a line in most wedding vows where they talk about uh, the wife promising to obey. And I've heard more than one woman uh, chafe at the idea that she would be asked to obey. We need to understand that in this context. See, Jesus being equal with God 
humbled himself and became obedient. Christ taught us what obedience and submission is all about. We don't obey and submit because we are less. In fact, it's interesting. The Jews strongly objected to Jesus being referred to as the Son of God. Why? Because that meant he was the same. You know, our children are part of us, right? They inherit from us genetically. Our, but whatever we are, right, whatever we are, we impart that to our children. And they are the same thing that we are, right? Since we are human, our children are human. I mean, that's the <clears throat> clearest answer to the, the infant debate or the, the fetus debate. You've heard that, right? It's not a it's not a human, it's a it's a it's a it's a fetus. Well what is a fetus? It's a human, right? It's gotta be. Because if it's got two human parents, it's got to be a human. And it's alive. So if it's alive and a human, it must be a human life. And if it's a human life, it's deserving of our protection. Simply by virtue of the fact that it is a human life. So they objected to Jesus being called the Son of God because that meant whatever God is, Jesus participates in that. And that's absolutely true. Whatever God is, Jesus fully participates in that. And this is where we run out of words. Because I would, I would say that what Jesus is composed is the same thing that God is. But that would imply a composer and Jesus had no composer. I would say he's made of the same stuff that God's made of. But that's, that would imply a maker and he has no maker. But whatever God's stuff is, whatever God is, <coughs> Jesus fully participates in that. That he's completely God. And he's completely human. I don't understand it, but this Bible teaches it, so I believe it. So our children are us. They are human. They don't, we, children don't submit to their parents because they're less than their parents. They're the same thing. They are deserving of the, the, every bit of much human dignity as their parents because they are as human as they're just as human as their parents. Eve was made from Adam's rib. He said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's not less than. She's the same thing. She participates in the fullness of humanity. Wives aren't commanded to submit because they're less than their husbands. God forbid. And husbands are to be reminded that they're fellow heirs. I've said this before. You know, every husband needs to realize their wife is a princess because she is the daughter of the great king. And you know, Peter says, you see, I've got two girls. Now, so far, they haven't found any young men that they thought were worthy of them. Rachel might have 
a clue. But uh, Anna hasn't found one yet. Yeah, I know, I'm in trouble. Anyway. But if the guys that treat your daughter right, they're okay. But if they don't, they're not okay. And it's the same thing with God. Peter says, if we don't treat our wives well, it will hinder our prayers. The word was made flesh. Let's meditate on that miracle. Every time we see a nativity, every time we see a star, every time we see an angel, a twinkling light, even a guy with a white beard and a red suit, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Brother Danny mentioned the manger being under the shadow of the cross. Certainly, we knew the wise men had been instructed by the Holy Spirit that death lay in Jesus' future. Myrrh is a perfume used for the dead. When Jesus was presented at the temple, Simeon told Mary that he, would, that he was destined to be abused, to be slaughtered, that it would pierce her own soul. He is God. He's king and God and sacrifice. I, I heard somebody, and, and this is interesting, I don't know how true it is, that uh, when the shepherds were told they would find the babe in swaddling clothes, that was a sign to them. Somebody said that it was custom in that time to take lambs that were to be um, offered at the Passover and to swaddle them, to protect them, because they were to be without spot or blemish. The idea of Christ as Passover lamb is scripture. John says, behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the earth. Now, whether that was the sign or not, I'm not so sure. But I do know that he is the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And he did that. He was sacrificed in our place on Calvary's cross. You know, the miracle is the incarnation, how that God could be made flesh. This is not some demigod like a Hercules or something like that. That's half man, half God. No, this is someone who's fully God and fully man at the same time. I do not understand it, but he's not half God. That would make him less than God. 
And he certainly does not originate in Bethlehem, even though he was born there, because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that the Word was made flesh in Bethlehem. Well, probably more likely in Nazareth. He'd been growing the whole time, right? The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And it was that flesh, that flesh that He offered for our sins, that blood that He shed for our reconciliation. You know, the people think about the miracle of, of Easter. And, and it's, it's a remarkable event. Don't get me wrong. But it's utterly consistent with God's being. Why don't I say that? How many times was he referred to in the Old Testament as the living God? It should be no surprise that Christ lives. He is the living God. God. That is, that's like really part of his attributes. That's what and who he is. He is the living God. So it's not really miraculous that the living God should live, right? Not compared to the fact that the living God died on Calvary's cross. There's the miracle. It doesn't look like it because we die all the time. Sometimes it's all we can do to keep living. But Jesus said something peculiar. He said, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. That's weird. You know, for, for most of us, it's all the power we, we have to stay alive, right? But Jesus, we die in weakness. But he died in power. Think about Meditate on that for a moment. You know, we die in weakness. He died in Power. Okay? Because it took power for him to die. Because it was against what and who he is. It was contrary for the living God to die. It was miraculous for the living God to die. It really was. It's no big deal for the living God to live. That's just part of who he is, right? But for the living God to die, that took power. And because the living God died, we who are dead will live and live forevermore. That's the, that's the whole point of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. That because Jesus rose, we will rise also. And there is over and abundant evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Such that it is an undeniable truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And because it is an undeniable truth that Jesus rose from the dead, then you will rise also. Because your resurrection is so tightly tied to his that to deny one is to deny the other. What a miracle. What a miracle it is that our Savior became one of us. That he is touched with our infirmities. He experienced our hardships. 
Brother, this world is full of pain. I wish I could tell you different, but it's true. I think, I think Wesley said it best. He said, the world is pain. Anyone who tells you different is selling something. And that's really part and parcel. Jesus never promised to do away with that. Paul says we glory in tribulation. We glory in tribulation also. For tribulation worketh patience. And patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh us not ashamed. For the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Jesus came down from heaven to suffer. And we participate in that suffering when we suffer with him. Especially when we suffer for his name's sake. The servant is not greater than his master. So let us not be surprised. That things don't work out the way we'd like them to. That things are harder than we would hope. Let's not lose faith because times are hard. But rather, let us trust in him who overcame all things. I will direct your attention to the 8th chapter of Romans, where we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. May the Lord richly bless you all.